You know, as we're in this Christmas season, uh, we're bombarded, and this is good and maybe bad, but we're bombarded with Christmas music, right? How many of you, you just, you cannot get enough of Christmas music? You don't get tired of it, you love Christmas music. How many of you, like, you could take it or leave it? Like, you like some of it, but some of it is too much for you? And so, yeah, I see those honest hands in the room, <laughs> those Grinches in the room who are saying, I'm a, little, I'm a little tired of hearing about that song last Christmas for the 200th time as I'm shopping. Uh, but everyone, I think, has is a favorite Christmas song, and I tend to think of Christmas songs in two categories. The types of Christmas songs we would sing in a service, and then the kind of the Christmas songs that are just fun and silly, like Frosty and Jingle Bells and stuff like that. And we all have favorite songs. One of the Christmas songs that some people love is the song, Mary, Did You Know? And it is a very pretty song, a very pretty melody. This week I, I, I found this meme online, and it was making fun of the song. There's a popular meme out there that shows Batman slapping Robin because Robin says something and Batman says something back to him. And I thought this was funny enough to share. Uh, Robin is saying, Mary, did you know? And Batman slaps him and says, she did. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. The angels came and they told her, stop singing about it. She knew. And then one of the memes I saw said, and she wrote a song about it that's better than your song. So... And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that song that Mary wrote. And, and Mary's obviously such a central character in the Christmas story. And uh, what I love about Mary is that she encompasses our series title so well, Hopes and Fears. And when we find Mary, I find her filled with hope. She's an engaged young teenager to a man who we learn is a wonderful man, an honorable man, and she has all these hopes about what her wedding will be like and what the rest of her life with Joseph will be like, and she's filled with hopes. And then we get to Luke chapter 1, and the angel shows up, and all of a sudden she's filled with fear. And the angel says, do not be afraid. And he begins to tell Mary, you've been chosen to be the mother of the promised Messiah. And now she's back filled with hope. It's amazing, not just for her, but for the people of Israel, that the Messiah is coming. And then the angel leaves her, and she is there thinking about the implications of what she was just told. And I have to think, the fear came back. What will people think? What will people say? Nobody will believe this. Hope, fear, hope, fear. And she goes to visit her uh, cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is also pregnant with a, a man that we come to know in the scriptures named John the Baptist. And when Mary walks into the room, both Elizabeth and the unborn baby in the womb respond to the presence of Jesus. Elizabeth exclaims how blessed she is. And it says in this text that this unborn child just leaps in the womb of Elizabeth, sensing the nearness of Jesus. And it fills Mary with such hope again. So now she's back filled with hope. And she bursts out in this song in Luke chapter 1. And I want us to look at this song together, reading from verses 46 to 55. It says that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. For he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And this is Mary's song. And this morning, as we think about the hopes and fears that we experience in the Christmas season, I want us to look closely at this song together and learn three important truths. And I think these three truths do two important things. They strengthen our hope and they speak to our fears. They strengthen our hope and they speak to our fears. And the first thing that we see in this song is simply the bigness of God. In verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. That literally means that my soul, who I am, my mind, my will, my intellect, my emotion, makes great the Lord, or it can even be interpreted, my soul enlarges the Lord. Which leads us to ask, how do you make God bigger than he already is? How can we make the greatest uh, being in all of existence greater than he already is? How can we make him larger and bigger? And the answer is, you and I can't. Nothing we do can make God any bigger than he actually is. But what Mary is saying here is that in my life, he is bigger. He is being enlarged in my own life. In other words, my perspective of who God is, is bigger. Not God is bigger, but who I see him to be is bigger. There's this really interesting scene in Prince Caspian, one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan and Lucy, Lucy this little girl, and Aslan this lion figure, they reunite, and Lucy looks at Aslan and says, Aslan, I think you're bigger. I think you've grown. And he says, no, that's that's because you are older, little one. And she says, well, not, not because you are? And he said, no, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I think that's true in the Christian faith. The more we grow in our faith, the more we grow in our identity and who we are in Christ, the more we grow in maturity, the bigger God seems to us. And I I, I fear that sometimes it's the opposite in the lives of longtime Christians. You're more familiar with God. You're almost over-familiar with God. You think you understand God more. You think you've boxed him in more. Your theology is more formed and determined and shaped. And now you think you understand what God does and what he doesn't do and how he works. And actually, over time, God in your eyes becomes smaller. We used to sing a worship song in our church that said, uh, I have made you too small in my eyes. So can we make God bigger? Can we make him smaller? We can't. But in our eyes, in our perspective, in the way that we see him, we certainly can There should be a growing awareness of his greatness. God's not getting any bigger, but our perspective of him is. You've all experienced maybe um, going back at some point in your life to a place that you grew up. A few years ago, I went back to Springfield, Missouri, where my family and I lived for a few years when I was, I think, four years old through seven. And and you you remember when when, when you, maybe you've had this experience, when you go back to something and all of a sudden you see it again, and in your mind, it was something bigger than it is in reality, Right? The backyard of the house you grew up in. When you think about it, you're like, man, that was just this massive backyard. Just so much room to run and play and have fun. And then you go to your old house and you look at it and you're like, what? This is the backyard? 
Because your mind over time has made it out to be bigger than it actually is. Your perspective changes. And our perspective changes as we grow. Now, one of the indicators that you know you're growing in your faith is that you're finding God today bigger, greater, and more glorious than you ever did before. One of the ways you know you're growing is that God looms larger in your eyes and in your heart than he ever has before. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his, listen, and his greatness is unsearchable. What that means is we don't grow tired of searching the things of God. We don't grow bored with the things of God. He doesn't grow smaller in our perspective. He grows bigger. It's the bigness of our God. Now, The question before us this morning is, is this true for you and me? Do you find the greatness of God to be unsearchable and a wonderful mystery? Or is God boring, uninteresting, all figured out by you? Then your God is too small. Here's some questions to ask yourself to determine whether or not the God you serve is big enough. Do you give him only part of your life? Do you allow God to only speak into certain aspects of your life, but there are certain areas of your life that you want to keep? Is he a consultant Or is he Lord? If Jesus sustains the universe simply by his spoken word, that's not someone you you invite into your life to be your consultant. (laughs) That's not someone you invite into your life every now and then to give you advice or to get you out of trouble. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so do you give him only part of your life? Do you depend on yourself more than him? If you find yourself overly dependent upon yourself and worried about what you're doing, what you can do, then he's too small. Do you try to control God by your right living? You, do, you keep all the rules, now God owes you. That is a too small God. God is bigger than that. He doesn't owe us anything, but he's given us everything. Do you tremble before every little obstacle and challenge in life? Do you lose your joy and your hope and your peace when things don't go your way? Then your God is too small. Now, how do we magnify God like Mary does? How do we see him to be bigger? Well, we go to the Word We come to him in prayer, and as we go to the word, and as we come to him in prayer, we have to take time, we have to slow down, and we have to consider him, and we have to meditate upon his word. I was talking to somebody right before service who was saying that maybe one of the silver linings of COVID in this holiday season is we can't be as busy as we normally are. We can't run from house to house and family to family. We have to slow down. And while many of us, and I realize that's a negative also, but while many of us would want to shake our fist at that, maybe we need to open up our hands and receive it as a gift. Say, God, if if this is a holiday season for me to slow down and to reflect, we're we're not great at that as a society. We're active. We're busy. We do things. We fill our lives with stuff. But sometimes God is calling us to slow down. And Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, he, he talked about his devotional life. I thought this was interesting. He said, after I pray and sing, sometimes I just like to sit still. I've got to be honest, that's not my habit. I pray and sing, and then I go on with my day. Well, actually, I don't actually do a lot of singing. I read and I pray, and then I go on with my day. But he would say, after I read, pray, and sing, he says, I sit still. And then listen to what he does. And I just gaze upward. Till my inmost soul has seen the Lord. And then I say, he is inexpressibly lovely. Yes, he is altogether lovely. Now, if that sounds foreign to you, it sounds a little foreign to me, to be honest. But I wonder if maybe we're missing out on seeing the greatness of God because we're in such a rush to do our spiritual disciplines and then get back on with our lives. Maybe we need to pause, reflect, gaze upward until our inmost soul has seen the Lord. 
and then walk away saying, oh, he's so lovely. He's so wonderful. He's so true. And the other way that we magnify the Lord is by doing what you're doing this morning in this room. We need each other to help. We need to help each other magnify the Lord. Uh, one, of the commentary, one of the commentaries said, there is an intensity of magnification that does not occur as readily in individual worship. Here's what he's saying. There's an intensity, there's a way in which God is magnified that doesn't happen as easily when you're by yourself. Now, what you do by yourself matters, but there's something about coming together, filling a room with voices, and lifting up God that magnifies him in a way that is more accessible than even things that we can do on our own. And this is because God has created us to gather and to be in community together. And one of the things is that I need you to really see the bigness of God. I can't see all who God is and all that God has for us on my own, I need to hear from you. What is God saying to you? What, it, what are you seeing of God? You know, and, and think about it. When, when a family goes to see some beautiful sight, like let's say a family goes to the Grand Canyon, when they get back in the car, they begin to share what they noticed and what they appreciated about it. Did you see this? And didn't it remind you of this? And can you believe this? And it's in the sharing of the experience that someone begins to get the full experience of what just happened. And when I see you standing and singing, and I know what you've been going through this week, and I know what your year's been like, but I see you lifting your hands, closing your eyes, and trusting in God. You know what it does for me? It makes God bigger in my eyes. It makes me realize, wow, he's not just big to me. He's big to you. And we've been missing out on that a lot this year. I'm so glad that we're back in now where we can gather like this safely. We need this. We'll never see how big God truly is if we stay on our own. We need to be together. Now, in the Christmas season, we often focus on the baby Jesus born in a manger. But please don't look at that baby and lose sight of the bigness of God. Mary knew. The second thing that we see in this story is the smallness of me. In verse 48, Mary said that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I want to read this to you from a few different translations. It will help us understand this. The NLT says, he took notice of his lowly servant girl. The NIV says, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And the New American Standard says, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Now, when Mary prays, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is a direct allusion to a story in the Old Testament about a barren, childless woman named Hannah who prayed a prayer, look on the affliction of your servant. Mary is basically quoting from Hannah's prayer. And the reason why they're connected is because in Hannah's story, it was personal childlessness. This was a woman who was without a child whose heart was broken over that condition. But in Mary's case, she's not even married yet. She's just engaged. She wouldn't expect to be with child. So this is not about personal childness. Listen, this was about national childlessness that the nation of Israel was waiting for the Messiah. And so when Mary prays this prayer, it echoes Hannah's prayer, and it speaks to us that they've been waiting for the Messiah. And, and Mary knows that she doesn't deserve this. In fact, one of the commentaries says that Mary was a nobody from a no place or a non-place. She didn't grow up anywhere important. She's not from an important family. She's not important. She's probably anywhere from 14 to 16 years old when this story takes place. But what we see here is that when God sends his angel to say, Mary, favor is on you and I've chosen you, that it means that Christ comes to those who are not impressed with themselves, who are not impressive to the world, but to those who realize their need and know that they cannot save themselves and realize that I am your humble servant. 
She has a proper view of herself. She realizes, I am the grateful recipient of God's grace and goodness. And that definition, or that description, I should say, is true of all, true of, all of us. How often do you think yourself as this way? I am the grateful recipient of God's goodness and grace. And if we start there with our identity, it gives us a proper view of ourselves, the bigness of God and the smallness of me. Now, smallness does not mean I'm a loser, I'm a nobody, nobody likes me. It's not a low view of self. It's a proper view of self. C.S. Lewis, as I've quoted him many times, says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? Two very different things. So we're not talking about self-pity, woe is me, no one likes me, because actually self-pity, low self-esteem, it's actually a perverted, inverted sense of pride, because pride is not thinking you're better than everyone else. Pride is thinking about yourself more than other people all of the time, and people who struggle with self-pity and low self-image, it's the same exact thing. They're thinking about themselves all of the time. It's just a different form of pride. So I'm not talking about a small view of yourself as in you beat yourself up and you think that you're, you're no good, but a small view in yourself as in terms of a proper view of yourself compared to who God is. Timothy Keller says that true gospel humility, I, I love this quote, it's, it's so, I think it's so practical, it's so boots on the ground, lean in and hear this. True gospel hum, humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. We do that. You know, everything that we hear is immediately we connect to ourselves. Before we, maybe this is just me, but before we think about other people sometimes and how that situation more affects them, we first think about how it might affect us. We have a friend who's maybe moving away. We immediately think, oh, man, this is terrible for me. And we start thinking about ourselves right away before we... True gospel humility means we stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. A true gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble forgetting myself type person. The solution is not to think poorly of yourself or to feel bad for yourself. The solution is to stop thinking about yourself all the time. And if you're being honest now, we have to ask the question, but how? How do we do that? Thinking about myself feels like my full-time job. <laughs> I mean, looking out for myself feels like that's what I'm doing 24-7. Uh, how, how, know, how do I step away from this? And I just want to suggest that the only way you and I will ever stop thinking about ourselves all the time is if we are profoundly convinced that God is thinking about you all the time. And once you really believe that God, it says in Psalm 115.12 that the Lord is mindful of us. Another psalm says, who is man? That God would be mindful of us. That God fills his mind with you. You know, Jesus taught that, that the Father knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. And how much more worth are you created in his image than a sparrow? God is always thinking about you. And his thoughts towards you are good. And I don't know, sometimes this is really hard for us to believe. We nod our heads on Sunday morning but on Monday morning, we don't live like this is true. But God's always thinking about you, and his thoughts towards you are always good. He wants to bless you. He wants to put his favor upon you. He wants to fill your life with his grace and his goodness. He wants to release you into your purposes, into your plans, into your destiny, into your calling, into everything that he has for you. And if God is always thinking of you, then you know what that means? We can stop thinking of ourselves. We can let go of this. He has good thoughts towards us. God sees you, he cares for you, and he's working for your good. Now, 
Yesterday, I got a text from someone in the church who said, I woke up this morning to a frozen pipe in my basement. And thankfully, it didn't burst. But he's like, I didn't know. He's like, I, I cut away some of the drywall and got to it and wrapped some heat tape around it. And I took care of it. And I was thinking, you went like three steps further than I could have gone. Like, I would have woken up. to. Well, first off, I'm not sure if I would have identified what it was, what was going on. You identified it. You cut into your wall. I would never cut into my wall because I don't know what I'm doing. And then you went out and you bought stuff. And it's like, like it, you know, we all have different, when it comes to home, home stuff, we all have different stages where we shift from doing it ourselves to outsourcing it right? You all have different comfort levels. Some of you, like me, outsource is stage one, step one. First thing is, who do I know that knows something about this? Some of you are very handy, and you, like Gary Houghton, I don't think you probably ever outsource anything in your house because you can do it all. And then some of you are somewhere in the middle, like my friend. I want to encourage you this morning that you can outsource the job of thinking about yourself. God's got it. And listen, he's way better at it than you are. He's way better at it than you are. Trust him to have thoughts towards you so that we don't always have to think about ourselves. Mary could embrace her low standing because she knew that even in her low standing, I loved one of the translations that said God noticed her. How good is it that there, he noticed there's nothing special about Mary. She was a teenage girl with no standing in society, no special gifts, no abilities to speak of. And listen, if you're here this morning or you're listening online, in the world's eyes, there may be nothing special about you. You may feel like all the special people in your life have passed you by and you're just very normal and very ordinary, but God notices you. He sees you. He cares for you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. You can forget about yourself because God never will. God often uses people who are not great. In fact, I think God delights to use people who are not great in the world's eyes to work out his great purposes because then he gets all the glory. Now remember, the greatest things in your life have been done by God for you, not done by you for God. The greatest things in your life have been done by God for you, not done by you for God. It's our, his bigness, our smallness. In the Christmas season, it's easy to think about ourselves, look out for ourselves. And listen, I know some of you will get to gather with family safely this week, and sometimes that creates challenging interactions. When you have those challenging interactions, those conversations, ask the Holy Spirit, simply pray this prayer, help me to stop thinking about myself and just trust you. Maybe, maybe comparing the gifts that, that you gave with the gifts that you received. Don't think about yourself. Maybe, comparing, maybe worrying about how people think about the gifts that you've given them. Stop thinking about yourself. Having the perfect holiday, I think we've all sort of set that hope aside this year. And then comparing 2020 with 2019. It's going to be different. But we can trust God with these things, right? He's big, we're small. And then the last thing that we see in this text is the goodness of Jesus. And I, I want to bring us back because we've been away from the text for a little while. Verse 51, it says that uh, he uh, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And what's interesting here is that the song shifts from personal to prophetic. Mary was singing about herself, but now she's singing about bigger things. And these verbs are all in the past tense. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. But this is, this is what we learn in the New Testament. It's called the prophetic past tense, past tense, which means she's speaking of future things that God will do, but because it's so sure he will do it, because God always keeps his promises, you can speak it in the past tense like it's already happened. 
That's what Mary's doing here. These are future events that she's so confident God will do because of his prof- the prophetic word. She speaks about it in the past tense. And the incarnation of Christ begins this great reversal of turning everything upside down. And in turning everything upside down, it reveals to us the goodness of Jesus. And as we get ready to close, I'm going to have the band come up and get ready. I want us to look at what Jesus does really quickly, how good he is. There's three things that we saw in the passage we just read. Number one, He scatters the proud, which means he uproots and destabilizes those who are sure in the foundation of their life. So many people are building the foundation of their life on the wrong thing. Success, wealth, power, influence, intellect, moral superiority. These people who imagine that their status or their good fortune is due to their superiority. Those who look like they can't be shaken or undone, God is going to scatter them someday. The goodness of Jesus doesn't make any sense without the justice of God. We need both of those things. And the goodness of Jesus means that in God's justice someday, he will scatter the proud. Those who, uh, those who use their power to take advantage of other people. Those uh, who um, are, are bra- braggers. Those who are prideful. Those who um, taunt others. Those who misuse other people. Those, Someday, God will scatter every single one of them, and that's actually part of the goodness of Jesus. Secondly, it's said in the verse that he lifts the humble. The mighty rulers will be brought low, and the lowly humble will be elevated. And we see this storyline through the Old Testament over and over and over again and the birth of Jesus. And at Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the story of the shepherds, how the angels from heaven came to the lowest of society to say not just glory in the highest, but glory in the lowest, wherever you are. He lifts the humble. And then lastly, he fills the hungry. Now, in the natural, hunger is not a good thing. Hunger is a problem. When we're hungry, we're not happy. Happy. You've heard the word hangry, right? Hungry and angry together. You know, you won't like me when I'm hangry sort of thing. Like, we, we've, we, we know that hunger is not a good thing. But in the spiritual world, hunger is a great thing. Because hunger means that we're not satisfied with the things of this world. We've seen creation. We've seen what this world has to offer. And it's not enough. We weren't created to be satisfied with those things. But when that baby was born, and when Mary sang that song, here's what it meant. You don't have to be hungry anymore. Your soul won't have to starve. Your spirit will not die within you, wondering where is hope, where is peace, where is joy, because our Messiah has come. And when the Messiah came, it meant those who are, are you hungry this morning for God, thirsty for his presence, for his blessing, for his favor on your life. Hunger is a good thing. It reveals a need that Christ will meet. And in the Christmas season, it's so easy to buy into the commercialism, the hype, the consumerism, the pace, the business, and the stress. But as Christians, we know there's a different way. There's a better way. There's an upside-down kingdom. And the values and ethics of God's kingdom should counter and challenge the values and ethics of the world's kingdoms. It's an upside-down view. Now, we have the bigness of God, the smallness of me, and the goodness of Jesus. And in closing, I want us to consider this, that the Christmas story, this story that we looked at this morning, uh, this Mary song, this is part of a bigger story. In verse 54, Mary closes out her prayer by bringing Israel into it. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. Mary's thinking all the way back thousands of years to Genesis chapter 12 where God came to a man and chose him, just like he chose Mary. He didn't chose Mary because she was special. He didn't choose Abraham because he was special. He chose him because he's God and he gets to choose. And he came to Abraham and he said, I want to choose you to be a blessing. I want to bless you and through you, I want to bless the nations. 
God started telling this story thousands of years before Mary ever sang her song. God chose Abraham and the nation of Israel to be his people that so through them and through their lineage that we talked about last Sunday, the Savior of the world, Mary's son, Jesus, would be born. And so Mary could say, my soul magnifies the Lord. And listen to what Mary says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Even Mary realized that the son within her had come for her, to save her, to rescue her, to give her hope. She saw his bigness. She saw her smallness. And in that moment, somehow, by the Spirit, she saw the goodness of Jesus, who he was and what he came to do. And what did he come to do? He came to give you and I a song to sing, just like he did for his own mother, Mary. Let's pray together this morning.